Hello, welcome, thanks for listening. This is a history of Indonesia. The triumph of Majapahit is the culmination of everything we've been learning about up till now. Over the course of the 1300s, it became the most successful of the Hindu Buddhist states. Its reach extended to the coast of New Guinea in the east and up to the Malay Peninsula in the west. The lands that Majapahit dominated are a key justification for the current boundaries of the Indonesian state. Starting in Funan, then to Sumatra with Srivijaya, over to central Java and finally to east Java, it seems we've witnessed a steady progression to the south and east. The ever-growing spice trade has kept drawing power towards the few islands that could produce nutmeg and cloves. Majapahit based its empire on Java's rice and control of the seas in the eastern archipelago. But just as the centre of gravity once again shifted further east, the western archipelago was busy reinventing itself. New trading centres on Sumatra became the first Muslim states. Srivijaya, that was a diminished power, but still important in the Straits of Malacca, differentiated itself from Majapahit by becoming the emporium of Indian Ocean goods, trading cotton, pepper and the like for Chinese silk and porcelain. So, as usual with Indonesia, there are a lot of cross-currents. Majapahit became the pinnacle of the Hindu-Buddhist states, making permanent many of the iconic elements of Indonesian culture. But it's just one part of the story. The biggest countervailing force was the pincer move of Islam, coming both from China in the wake of Mongol dominance and from the Indian Ocean cultures that had been influencing Indonesia from way back into prehistory. And like Indianisation before it, it's not a conquest. It's a slow cultural change. Socially, it's both bottom-up and top-down. Elites convert for all sorts of reasons, but traders, merchants and migrants also force change from the bottom up. All this big picture stuff can hide what was happening at another level. The Hindu-Buddhist states were very much an elite construct. The Indianised cultures and values that they championed were rarely embraced wholeheartedly by the masses. Local customs and cultures remained very strong. Beyond cultivated lands, the archipelago was still a place of spirits and monsters for many locals. Small ethnic groups rose and fell as they interacted with the bigger players. Their influence was crucial, but it's often unheralded. My original plan was to make a whole episode about Majapahit. It's a big empire and it's one that endured in the Indonesian memory during the colonial years. I've been surprised by the relatively small amount of material available on the topic. There's a couple of key characters and the odd interesting story, but largely, Majapahit's time is about gradual success, not exactly the most fertile ground for history. But there are interesting undercurrents. The success of Majapahit masks the work of, for example, the sailors and shipbuilders of Madura, or Boogie and Makassar sailors from Sulawesi but once again I've struggled to fit them into the episode. So today we'll look at Majapahit and the simultaneous rise of Islam on the archipelago. But we should keep in mind that many smaller communities play a big role too. Let's start with Majapahit. We left off with Rudin Vijaya double-crossing the mighty Mongols and founding the Majapahit dynasty. But we probably need to take a couple of steps back to his father-in-law's time 
to Kurtanagara's rule to understand the prize Radin Vijaya had won for himself. The Singhasari realm had been expanding since Kenaruk founded the kingdom in 1222. East Java became an important power in the region, mainly because of its productive rice fields, but it was far from dominant. But by the time of Kurtanagara's reign, East Java was the first among equals on Java and in the eastern archipelago. He was able to consolidate power in the east because the west was in disarray. The Mongol expansion was displacing southern Chinese and there were invasions of Burma and Vietnam by the Mongols too. So even more so than usual, Southeast Asia was in flux. Java's typical competitors from around the Malay Peninsula were kept busy managing the cascading disorder heading their way. It was this disorder that brought things to a head. Trade through the straits was becoming less reliable. It was in everyone's interest to have secure shipping routes, but there was no power capable of enforcing order. Kurtanagara's Singhasari kingdom was already influential in the straits and took it upon itself to impose some sort of order. They initially sent armed forces to Jambi, one of the traditional centres of Malay power, in the 1270s. At first, they seemed to have been welcomed as a stabilising force rather than an invading one. But a decade later, Kurtanagara had developed his taste for conquest. After subjugating Bali in 1284, he moved westward and subdued rivals in Borneo and Sumatra. His influence over the Straits was growing as well, and the Chinese had noticed. The various failed diplomatic missions followed, and the consequence was the defeat of the Mongol fleet that we covered last episode. But by this time, Kurtanagara was dead, and Singhasari had morphed into Majapahit, with its capital much closer to the mouth of the Bruntus River. In the space of a hundred years, the nobles of East Java had come a long way. Kenaruk had been the first to establish a unified East Javanese kingdom since Erlunga had divided the kingdom at the start of the millennium. Now with the defeat of the Mongols, it wasn't just East Java they were fighting for, but a much bigger prize, control of the archipelago as a whole. And that brings us back to Majapahit. Majapahit's kings ranged from the good and the well-meaning to the merely competent through to the decadent and dim-witted. But rather than the lottery of inherited rule, a commoner took the reins to guide Majapahit from kingdom to empire. After Radin Vijaya's death, first his son and then his daughter ruled the kingdom. A royal guard, Gajamada, rose to be regent during the daughter's reign and continued in the role when the queen abdicated in 1350. He was the power behind the throne for at least 30 years, the years corresponding with Majapahit's expansion. The best Javanese primary source, the Nagarakutagama, was written just after Gajamada died. Its author was a court poet, and it mostly shows Gajamada in a heroic light. His life story contains some elements that might be taken from past myths, or maybe his story has been projected back onto those earlier legends. Gajamada first served Jayanagara, who ruled from 1309 to 1328, following the death of Majapahit's founder, Radin Vijaya. In 1321, there was a plot against King Jayanagara, 
Gajamada and his royal guard successfully protected the king and crushed the rebellion. In some versions of his story, the king subsequently takes a liking to Gajamada's wife, not exactly the way to repay his loyalty. In a love triangle with similarities to Kenaruk's rise to power, Gajamada turns on his king by getting a royal surgeon to murder him. Gajamada becomes regent for the new queen and holds the role for a generation. After crushing another rebellion on the south coast of Java, Gajamada is said to have sworn an oath to not stop there, but to subdue all of Nusantara, or the outer islands of the region. The source here is the Pararaton, written long after Gajamada's death. So this oath is likely an embellishment after the fact, but Gajamada definitely had his eye on expansion and did go on to extend East Java's rule across the archipelago. The oath symbolises a shift. Since Kurtanagara's death in 1292, East Java had basically been in a civil war and Gajamada had emerged as the victor of that decades-long struggle. Now, with their home base secured, they could reassert control over the areas beyond Java that Kurtanagara had claimed back in the late 1200s. But the world outside East Java hadn't stood still. The Western Archipelago was changing too. The Chinese had active trade and naval fleets in the area since the Song Dynasty. Their presence had grown over time and would soon culminate in the famous treasure fleets of Zheng He. But there were other players too. The Thai Empire was asserting itself in the Straits, occasionally butting up against Majapahit or Chinese rivals. And as always, Indian Ocean powers had a great interest in the region. Ever since the Chola attacks on Srivijaya in 1025, our focus has been with developments in Java. But even though Srivijaya had lost its stranglehold on trade, it hadn't lost all its influence. It was still sending diplomatic missions to China as late as 1277, but was now just one of many ports competing for the passing trade. Malay communities continued to forge new destinies for themselves, taking advantage of their location, their seafaring skills, and their extensive trade networks. In short, the Malays were still the linchpin of the region. They had linked East and West trade for as long as anyone could remember. And it wasn't just the narrow shipping passage between Sumatra and the Malay Peninsula where they were influential. Malay language and culture extended to ports in North Vietnam, Borneo and the eastern half of the Bay of Bengal. They were as influential in this part of the world as the Phoenicians were in the ancient Mediterranean. And like the Phoenicians, they transported culture and ideas along with the goods they traded. In past episodes, we've looked at how crucial the Malays were in introducing Buddhism to the region. As Majapahit was busying itself taking control of the archipelago, the Malay diaspora was in a period of competitive disorder, but Muslim influences from China, India and the Arab states were slowly changing Malay culture and making Islam a crucial part of their ethnic identity. There are several myths and legends about early Muslim missionaries that have no historical basis. There were almost certainly small pockets of Muslim communities in many trading centres from the early days of the Islamic faith. 
but Islam's influence was limited. As Islam spread east, interactions between Muslims and the archipelago increased. So why didn't Islam make more of an impact sooner? And equally as puzzling, when it did finally take hold, why did it take hold so decisively? The first hard evidence we have is literally hard. It's a gravestone found in East Java from 1082 with an Islamic name and Arabic writing. But on closer inspection, that gravestone was not of Javanese origin, but had finished up there because it was used as an anchor by a passing ship. It might be symbolic of how Islam spread, but it's not evidence of its widespread adoption. It was once again distant actors who really set the scene for Islam to spread in Southeast Asia. Much like the fall of Constantinople, the fall of Baghdad to the Mongols displaced Islamic scholars, many of them finding new homes in the emerging Indian sultanates. The Delhi Sultanate expanded south in the early 1200s, incorporating Gujarat and Bengal, two of the biggest trading centres attracting Malay merchants. Islam itself changed when it came to India. No other place on the planet had or has as rich a spiritual culture as India. And by the time Muhammad's teachings had gone through the Indian cultural filter, it was able to be presented to Southeast Asians in a more familiar way. Particularly, it's the rise of Sufi mysticism that seems to have bridged the cultural gap between Islam and Southeast Asia. This view is not without controversy. It's challenged by scholars who argue over the role of the Sufis. They point to the strong position Sufis were in at the time of increased Dutch interest in Islam around the second half of the 19th century. These 19th century Sufis moulded the Dutch view of Islamic history in Southeast Asia by overstating their own role in the archipelago's conversion. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Our first clear example of a Muslim community is Samudra Pasai in northern Sumatra, a port town where large quantities of pepper could be found. The origin myth of this sultanate is that the local heathen king dreamt of Muhammad spitting into his mouth, and when he woke, he was speaking in an unfamiliar language. On further inspection, he also discovered that he was now circumcised. Fortunately, a captain from a passing ship was able to confirm that the Raja was indeed speaking fluent Arabic and reciting passages from the Quran. Apparently this was the beginning of the conversion to Islam. Marco Polo visited Samudra Pasai on his journey home from China at the end of the 13th century. He'd been entrusted by Kublai Khan to escort a Chinese princess to her wedding in Hormuz. His story matches that of others, that by this time, Samudra Pasai was a well-established Islamic town. So just as Majapahit was perfecting the Hindu-Buddhist state, expelling the Mongols and expanding its territory, a very different future for the archipelago was germinating in small Sumatran ports. Half a century later, an Islamic traveller from Morocco, Ibn Battuta, whose journey dwarfs Marco Polo's, described a devout Muslim community observing many of the same rituals that he had witnessed across the Islamic world. Ibn Battuta tells us that Samudra Pasai was the easternmost city he visited where Islam was the dominant faith. The rise of Islam, especially at the northern tip of Sumatra, shows how the Malay world was changing. 
successful ports concentrated on east-west trade rather than local archipelago goods that were often monopolised by Javanese ports. This narrower focus brought with it increased Islamic influences from Arab and Indian traders. The evidence for this can still be seen in the modern Malay language, with 15% of words derived from Arabic. There was also greater influence from Chinese Muslims, who prospered during the Yuan dynasty. Many made new homes for themselves in Southeast Asia, especially when Islam lost favour in China under the Ming dynasty. Just like the arrival of Indian faiths a thousand years earlier, Islam slowly enmeshed itself in the region through trade into marriage, passing scholars, adventurers, and eventually by force. But early on, Islam was a faith of a new ethnically diverse middle class of merchants. It was an aspirational faith that cut across class lines. Having a common faith bridged some cultural barriers and increased trust amongst traders. It was also portable. It didn't depend on frequenting a certain temple at a particular time of year. After all, it was a faith started by Arabic traders, so Malay traders probably saw the founders of the faith as kindred spirits. The cultural links back to India made Islam more recognisable once large Indian populations had been converted. Remember, the trade networks were based on a series of return trips. Individual boats rarely went all the way from the Red Sea to China. Rather, a merchant would specialise in one leg of the network. Malays concentrated on the trade to their immediate east and west, maybe taking silk and ceramics to India, and returning with a cargo of cotton cloth and cinnamon. So Malay sailors travelling west to Gujarat and Bengal would have had more and more contact with Muslims and Islamic thought as Islam spread south in India. There would have been a growing awareness and interest in Islam. And as we've seen previously, archipelago communities that embraced the widest networks seemed to be the ones that prospered. Islam was becoming a unifying force stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific coasts. Just as Hindu idols had drawn archipelago ports into India's cultural sphere of influence, and later Buddhist monks had expanded that sphere to include Central Asia and China, Islam was once again enlarging the cultural view of Southeast Asians. Just as they had in the past, coastal communities embraced the most universal and international cultural symbols on offer. The old Malay ports of Jambi and Palembang, the foundation of Srivijaya's success in southeast Sumatra, were now isolated between the new Islamic ports to the north and Majapahit, expanding from the south. By 1350, Gajamada had gone a long way to fulfilling his oath. Majapahit had conquered or subdued Bali, Lombok, ports in Borneo and parts of Sumatra. It wasn't long before Majapahit turned to the last remnants of Srivijaya in Palembang and Jambi. Srivijaya had been a powerful kingdom for hundreds of years, even before the first significant kingdoms emerged on Java. But now they were no match for Majapahit's forces. An East Javanese prince was installed as the regional king. Exiling the Malay elites from their Sumatran ports was quite a feat for any Javanese ruler. The Straits were the other great power centre of the archipelago, the key to east-west trade. To have a foothold on the Straits, in addition to their command of the spice trade, 
and Java's agricultural strength meant Majapahit was on the verge of having almost unrivaled control of maritime Southeast Asia. All that was left to do was to mop up some of the holdouts across the archipelago. One of the biggest holdouts was the West Javanese Sundanese Kingdom, and Majapahit's general and regent, Gajamada, engineered a political solution. The Sundanese king agreed to marry one of his daughters to the new king of Majapahit, Hayam Waruk. The couple's marriage and eventually their offspring would be symbols of trust between the rival Javanese states. The Sundanese entourage were brought to the Majapahit capital for the wedding. But once they arrived, Gajamada seems to have pulled the old East Javanese double cross that we've already heard about a few times. The princess was to become merely a consort, not a queen. A lesser wife to show that Majapahit was not in alliance with the Sundanese, but that the Sundanese had come under Majapahit rule. Of course, this was not acceptable to the Sundanese at all. What followed is described by Sundanese texts as a heroic battle, by the Javanese as just a misunderstanding. But I think it's fair to call it a massacre. The Sundanese wedding guests were slaughtered, and the princess took her own life. Gajamada was removed as regent shortly after. Whether it was because he had organised this double cross without the king's knowledge, or he took the blame for diplomatic reasons, we don't know. Maybe Hayam Wuruk had just reached the age where he was ready to rule. He was a very capable leader, and the empire had continued success under his rule. The young king went on to marry a cousin, but didn't leave an obvious successor. The subsequent division of power following his death was the start of a slow decline for Majapahit. Would things have turned out differently if the Sundanese marriage arrangement had just gone ahead instead of ending in bloodshed? Maybe Majapahit's longevity could have been sustained by the Sundanese alliance. As is often the case, empires can sometimes be their own worst enemies. Having said all that, there's some doubt over this whole incident. Other sources simply point to a Sundanese raid on Majapahit at this time that was repelled. In any case, Gajamata still holds a special place in the minds of Indonesians, particularly the Javanese. Nationalists in the early 20th century used the story of Majapahit and the character of Gajamata as a template for what an independent country might look like and the type of rulers they hoped to be. Indonesia's second president, Suharto, in many ways replicated Gajamada's model of leadership. He also rose through the ranks on the back of military triumphs to become first a general, then ruler, and ultimately a coloniser. President Suharto was quite attracted to Javanese mysticism and sought out relics belonging to Gajamada during his rule as symbols of Javanese kingship. He had a mask brought from a Balinese temple to Jakarta, hoping some of its power might rub off on him. There's also a story that Sukarno, the first president, held a kris that belonged to Gajamada, but when he lost power to Suharto, the kris disappeared from the record. Apparently, Suharto was quite keen to get his hands on this symbol of legitimate rule, a kind of Javanese Excalibur. But nobody knows what happened to the kris, or if it ever existed. Majapahit is a symbol of homegrown power and strength for many Indonesians. But just as Majapahit was at its height, the nature of what homegrown meant 
was changing. A Brunei ruler from this time referred to himself as both Raja, an Indian title, and Sultan, an Islamic one, highlighting the cultural balancing act that was going on. Towns on the north coast of Java with large Chinese and Arab diaspora communities used Islam as a unifying force in a rapidly changing region. It might seem inevitable then that Islam was destined to overturn the old faiths. But when it comes to the big change in the Straits, religion was a secondary concern. Ever since Majapahit had taken control of the old Trivagine port towns in the 1370s, Singapura, the same island as modern-day Singapore, became the citadel for Srivijaya's displaced elites. They had fortified it to defend against raids from both Majapahit and the Thais. Hemmed in from all directions, it would have been no surprise if this is where they disappeared from the historical record. But we don't call the Straits the Thai Straits or the Straits of Majapahit. We call them the Straits of Malacca. And it was a faction from Singapore that established Malacca as a new trading hub. The reasons for Malacca's quick success are debated, but conversion to Islam wasn't really a foundation of Malacca's success. Here's a scathing quote from an Arab navigator describing the lack of piety in Malacca in the mid-1400s. Quote, What people! They have no Muslim culture at all. The infidel marries Muslim women, while the Muslim takes pagans to wife. You do not know whether they are Muslims or not. Theft is rife among them, and they do not mind. The Muslim eats dogs for meat, for there are no food laws. They drink wine in the markets, and do not treat divorce as a religious act. End quote. Clearly, the transition to Islam didn't happen all at once. Local beliefs were maintained and ultimately incorporated into Southeast Asian Islam. Their adherence to doctrine wasn't what attracted passing trade. Padmasvara, the founder of Malacca, claimed to be descended from Palembang royalty. He may well have been, but I suspect his initial success probably had more to do with the sort of activity that was notorious around the islands that dotted the southern end of the Malacca Strait. Piracy is a very subjective term, but given the location had a reputation for being one of the most likely places to encounter pirates, it's a pretty safe bet that piracy was a big part of Padmasvara's emergence. The numerous islands offered lots of hideaways for bands of pirates, and the narrow channels forced ships onto predictable headings, where they became easy prey. Here's a quote from a Chinese navigator. Quote, The inhabitants of this area are addicted to piracy. When Chinese junks sail to the Western Ocean, the local barbarians allow them to pass unmolested. But when on their return the junks reach the Karaman Islands, the sailors prepare their armour and padded screens as a protection against arrows for, of a certainty, some two or three hundred pirate prows will put out to attack them for several days. Sometimes the junks are fortunate enough to escape with a favourable wind. Otherwise, the crews are butchered and the merchandise made off with in quick time. End quote. So this was the area where Paramasvara emerged from. He had the support of the local Lorong Laos, or the Sea Peoples. They would revert to piracy whenever the region became destabilised, as it was at the end of the 1300s. 
the exact details of when their piracy evolved to be more of a protection racket and ultimately a trading hub is hard to know. Malacca was a small fishing village towards the middle of the Straits on the Malay Peninsula. It was perfectly placed to intercept both Chinese and Indian Ocean shipping. Over time, Paramisvara's pirates acted more like an organised navy. They could force ships into port and offer safe passage through the Straits as pilots and protectors. Emissaries from Malacca went to China to re-establish Srivijaya's preferred trading rights with the Middle Kingdom. Malacca found an outward-looking China that was keen to award most favoured status on a compliant vassal to check both Thai and Majapahit expansion in the Straits. So Malacca's foundation was built on its own naval strength and ability to subdue local piracy. Ming China's steady stream of trade gave Malacca a critical mass of products and traders that made it an attractive port. China also provided a security guarantee keeping Majapahit and the Thais at bay in Malacca's early years. Modern Singapore is probably a pretty good simile for what was going on in Malacca. After World War II, Singapore, a small city-state, asserted its independence in an unstable region. It offered a favourable investment environment and fairly open access for people from various backgrounds. But it was the security guarantee of the United States Navy that underpinned Singapore's rapid transformation. I imagine the Chinese Navy played a similar role for Malacca at this time. Like 20th century Singapore, Malacca soon became renowned as an open, cosmopolitan port, with communities from China, India, Arabia and elsewhere. Quote, Different national groups in Malacca came to be identified with particular trade specialties. The Gujaratis, Tamils and Bengalis were mostly clothed merchants, but dealt also in a variety of local goods from the West and India. Boogies and other island peoples from Sulawesi, the Bandas and Maluku were the spice and sandalwood traders. From Palembang and Jambi came Minangkabau traders bearing cargoes of pepper and a little gold. Javanese controlled the rice and other imported foodstuffs. Chinese traders dealt in silk, ceramics and porcelain. End quote. So a vibrant town with many influences. But what about Islam? Well, it was a slow process. The ruler, Paramisvara, converted to Islam late in life, taking the title Iskandar Shah. His successor converted too, but often used a more traditional Indianised name. There was still clearly some value left in hanging on to those Indianised names and titles. Within a couple of more generations, though, Islam was embedded and vital when it came to incorporating surrounding coastal areas into Malacca's orbit. In the 1400s, Malacca became, to Islam, what Srivijaya had been for Buddhism 800 years earlier, a Southeast Asian religious centre for an international faith. Malacca was the inheritor of Srivijaya's role rather than a continuation. Its power was based on many of the same elements, open, cosmopolitan trade and Chinese support. But culturally, it was now very different. The rise of Malacca is a turning point. It brings us well and truly into the modern period. Islam is now a permanent and growing fixture. International trade booms in the 1400s, and Malacca is one of the major beneficiaries. In the 1500s, 
the Portuguese crave the port of Malacca, eventually conquering it to mark the start of the European colonial period. But before we get to the Europeans, the 1400s are a time when China flourishes and Islam continues to spread throughout the archipelago. And I'll save all that for next time. If you want to get in touch, email anotherhistorypodcast at gmail.com, Facebook, History of Indonesia Podcast, Twitter, at anotherhistpod, A-N-O-T-H-E-R-H-A-S-T-P-O-D, anotherhistpod. Subscribe, rate and review on iTunes. Anything you can do to get the show noticed is much appreciated. Again, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.